Light shines in the darkness for the upright. The righteous are merciful and full of compassion. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A woman was checking out at the grocery store one morning. The young cashier handed her the receipt and said with a cheerful voice, Have a nice day. To which the woman replied, I'm sorry, but I have other plans. Maybe she did have other plans. Or maybe she just didn't appreciate being told what to do by someone she didn't know. Have a nice day is not the sort of thing Jesus ever said to anyone when leaving them or when they were leaving him. He said things like, go and sin no more. Or rise, take up your bed and walk. And go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In the gospel reading for today, he is saying, go, be salt and light. Of course, lots of people then and now respond with, sorry, I have other plans. During an election cycle, as the one we just finished, we become familiar with stump speeches. These are the talking points that political candidates repeat at every campaign stop. The refrains they use will echo even after they have moved on to the next stop. Indeed, certain phrases become associated with a particular face and voice and agenda. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' stump speech. And the Beatitudes are nine refrains that echo long after Jesus has moved on. Picture the blessed are statements on placards held high in the sea of faces around Jesus. These fragments form the context of the gospel this week about salt and light, which seem simple enough to be campaign slogans, until Jesus threw a curve in it with this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So in this second week of the Sermon on the Mount series, we start realizing that the stakes are getting higher. The gospel goes from blessing statements of last week to what disciples look like and how they matter to the world, be the salt and the light, to a strong warning at the end. By the end of the passage, we are deflated. It seems that Jesus is asking for perfection. How can we exceed the righteousness of the most pious and devout men and women we know? This is really strong language. We'll come back to those heavy laden words, righteousness and kingdom of heaven. What exactly do we understand as being told to be the salt of the earth and light to the world? Some biblical scholars talk about the Sermon on the Mount as a manual for his disciples Jesus was talking to his inner circle. And he continues that instruction in today's gospel. He tells his disciples, us, that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, indicating that as followers, we illuminate and transform. These words of wisdom are not passive. 
but reflected of how we are to be active, we are to be God in the world. For the most part, in biblical times, salt was overwhelmingly viewed as a positive resource. Not only did salt add flavor to food, it also preserved certain foods, such as meats and fish, from spoiling. It helped purify or cleanse meats through the removal of blood, which was forbidden to be consumed according to the Torah, and was useful in healing certain ailments. All of these uses were commonly known in first century Palestine. Indeed, such uses were likely the cause for the symbolic use of salt in offerings and sacrifice, as well as in sealing God's covenant with Israel, which is referred to in Second Chronicles. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he and his audience likely had much more in mind than a convenient flavor source. Salt was, to put succinctly, a necessary element of life. And by extension, salt was a symbolic bond of the necessary relationship between God and Israel. But now Jesus of Matthew's gospel goes on to say he has come not to dissolve that covenant, but to fulfill it. And in the process, he associates the people of Israel, in fact all of God's people, with that salt. In the same way, Light functions in order to allow humans to see. In our contemporary world, it is difficult to imagine being without light. However, when it was nightfall in the ancient world, it was dark. In Jesus' usage, the light is not simply to allow others to see whatever they wish, but it is for others to witness the acts of justice that Jesus' followers perform. Beyond that, it allows the audience to recognize the cause of these actions, the God of heaven. So back to these challenging words, righteousness and kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has issued the challenge. He is telling his followers how very difficult obedience to the new law, the new Torah, will be. When we think of the Pharisees, if the first thought that comes to mind is hypocrite or self-righteous, sanctimonious person, and that is listed as the first definition in Webster's, then Jesus' comparison is not a challenge at all. So who were the Pharisees and scribes? What type of influence did they have on the population? According to Josephus, the first century historian and a Pharisee himself, the Pharisees cultivate harmonious relations with the community and receive respect from the community because of their virtuous lives. These people loved the law. They had a moral commitment to legal principles. Jesus' followers were being asked to be more committed to God's justice in the world than these prominent leaders. For the first century Jew, Torah was a way of life, given by God within a covenant of love and grace. Matthew's community was truly faced with a choice, our Torah or Christ. Does righteousness in this passage mean morality? What if it meant 
that your expectations should exceed the scribes and Pharisees or that your participation in God and the word exceed the scribes and Pharisees. It's still terrifying. Most of us would think, I suspect, that we aren't that theologically astute. But Jesus is telling us that you are promised more than the most spiritual people you know. The scribes and Pharisees, people you believe are living really good lives. So maybe God is offering us a way to participate in the world. A promise, not a threat. Maybe Jesus is saying, unless you fully participate, have the highest expectations, you will never encounter or experience the fullness of God, the kingdom of heaven. As I said earlier, we are being reminded that the stakes for being a disciple are getting higher. This teaching about law, being the fulfillment of the law, and being the authority of God on earth, was dangerous teaching. It was equally dangerous for the first century Christian to separate from our common Judaism and follow this man. Those divisions last to present time. Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us that regardless of our divisions of faith with our Jewish neighbors, we share a common challenge. We are all called to exceeding Righteousness. In both of our traditions, righteousness has never been a matter of following rules, but of honoring relationships with strangers as well as families, with enemies as well as allies. The Torah of Moses and the Torah of Jesus both agree on that. When we honor our neighbors, when we shine our light for them and not hide it, When we love them as ourselves, then we are ready to discover what the law, the prophets, and the gospel are all about.